Hi, this is Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Food That Minds. Today's guest is Chef Marcus Samuelson. Hi, Marcus. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Could you please introduce yourself to Atlanta listeners who may not know who you are? My name is Chef Marcus Samuelson. I've been cooking all my life. Uh, I'm very excited about our new spot. We just opened in the fourth ward called Marcus Bar and Grill. So, um, yeah, I've been cooking in New York for about 20 years, 20, 20 plus years. I have a restaurant called Red Rooster in Harlem and a brand new restaurant called Havmar in Chelsea. And for for people who may not know, you know, you're you're like multi-awarded chef. You've, you've won numerous cooking competitions on TV, but also numerous James Beards awards. Um, but I, I, what I don't really want to talk to you about is like all your awards. I'm really interested in talking about your connection to food and how it has forged other relationships in your life. One of the questions I always ask people is, when did you know that food was going to be a thing for you? It, was there a moment when you realized that it was going to be something more than just something you like to eat? Well, I think food has always been a very special part of our family. Uh, not so much for my parents, but more for my grandparents um, and my uncles and aunties. You know, my grandparents on my mother's side, my grandmother was a domestic. She was a home, uh, you know, she cooked for a family. Uh, and when she retired, she really cooked for us. And she brought all that experience, both of poverty, but also of love and cooking to our family and once i never thought about my grandparents as babysitting me like you 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 enter their home and it was a decision you were hanging with them and hanging with them meant working you we were always pickling something preserving something there was always a bread in the oven there was always a uh, chicken to be roasted or fish mm. to be butchered. There was something or, you know, jam to be uh, jarred. It was always something. And uh, I never, I thought that's what I, all the kids did when they were with grandparents. <laughs> and I just happened to like it, you know. But that was one time, you know, I, you know, once I got a teen, became a teenager and started working in restaurants, you know, I loved it because I could bring out all this experience. And then the second part was, um, I think pretty early I got great experiences abroad and I just recommend all the young ones out there to, or, or not so young ones, career changes to travel. It really exposed and changed everything for me. Going to Japan as a teenager, going to living in Switzerland where people are speaking three languages and working in restaurants and seeing it from the back of the house. That was game changing for me. And you grew up in Europe, yes, um, yes in, in Sweden. And and I've always found um, that the relationship to food is much much more different in Europe than it is in the United States. There, there's more of a reverence, I think, for tradition and ingredients. Um, would you say that's something that you learned growing up in Sweden? Well, I mean, I, I don't even compare them it's just different experiences right uh our diversity and how we are living in america and how we are a younger country uh changes everything how we eat and what we cook and and as families you know europe is older and therefore um 
it sticks to certain tradition and it's a little bit more rigid when it comes to food. Uh, but, um, you know, eating wasn't a, a full on experience, whether I had a bad meal with mom and dad and I biked over to my grandma's house and had a wonderful meal, <laughs> uh, or, you know, just eating a mackerel, smoked mackerel toast with my drunk uncles in, on the, on the coast house, you know, we had a um, summer, summertime we spent, uh, in the fishing village where my father was from. And we were just hanging out all day with our uncles. They were fishermen and, you know, eating a piece of crisp bread with, you know, just freshly boiled potatoes and smoked mackerel. That was just, you go walk into a smokehouse and you pick a piece of mackerel and you put it on a toast. It's like the highest level of luxury, but it's also the poorest version of food. Mm. And what, what about cooking and being a cook, being a chef, like appealed to you? Um, was it hospitality? You know, was it the methodology? Um, what made you want to make it a career? I think the luxury of being black, uh, it, it sets you on a path in a place where uh, there's so few black culture around you, right? Mm. So you want to be in a space where you can both, in one way, disappear and just belong because of your passion or your craft or your you know your mm -hmm. the effort uh so the kitchen for me as much as yelling and screaming as it was it was a quiet space for me where i knew that i could add value and everybody saw that i could add value mm. so it was a place for me that i felt comfortable even if where other people were scared or intimidated or people were screaming or there were foreign languages i didn't hear any of that you know it was like you're you're a guitar player and you just found your band. You're a drummer and you find your people. You know what I mean? Right. So, uh, and so much as, you know, you go from a young teenager to uh, 18, 19, it's like, okay, where do I fit into this society? And Kitchen was one of those places where it was so clear that I belonged in the kitchen and I really loved it. And I found mentors right away, you know, that said, Hey, we're going to take our chances with you. We're going to bet on you. We're going to give you a shot, you know, and for any young adults, I think that's a, uh, that was a magical time. Who were those mentors? There were, it started with people in Gothenburg, my chefs, you know, that I thought were really old. They were like 27 and, you know, they've been to France and they've been to America, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then once I got to Switzerland, it was real chefs, you know, they were like, this was their career path. This was just not something they did in a fast restaurant in a corner in Gothenburg. This, they, they were the head chefs of Victoria Jungfrau, you know, mm -hmm. one of the top hotels in Europe. Um, uh, they said, hey, you need to go to three-star Michelin. We're going to help you. So that's not just, you know, when they thought that even working in an environment where German, which is not my language, or French, that is not my language, uh, I could I could add value, learn the language, and still think that they still thought it was there was a higher level for me. Uh, I was like, where do I sign? How do we do this? One of the things that found so interesting listening to you speak. I remember hearing you talk to Christopher Kimball at Milk Street 
about just the complexities of being a black chef. In Atlanta, you know, I, I've been a restaurant, well, I used to be a restaurant critic pre-COVID um, for forever. And, and one of the things as an immigrant myself that I've always found super frustrating was in this city of black excellence, all of the chefs were like white men, you know, in, in positions of power. And I, I just wanted to hear you talk about in the book that you wrote, The Rise, about what does it mean to be a Black cook? Well, I think the good news is that we have so many much, we're in a better state today where we have, you know, incredible Black chefs across the country. And they're not just in New York or in LA or something like that. They're across the country. What Greg Godet is doing in Portland, what Tavel Bristol-Joseph is doing in Austin, what Eric Williams is doing in Chicago. <clears throat> I can go down the list. What Leah, you know, the legacy that Leah Chase, mm -hmm. you know, the Sylvia Woods, uh, these are iconic, incredible people gave us, uh, we collectively taken on and built on and created a space for the next generation. You know, I think that there is a meaningful conversation about equality in food and and who gets to tell what stories, that is super important. So we are we are hopefully becoming actually a little bit more like music where you where like <clears throat> all kinds of music can be heard and, and you figure out a way to, you know, uh get to it, you know. Like if if you and I want to know about jazz, rock, R and B, mm -hmm. hip hop, there are well sort of created pockets that define what what is and um therefore my american music will always be leading because there's uh incredible innovation in it and uh that journey could be painful as we watch it but it also can be beautiful you know out of it comes something like hip-hop that is the biggest pop culture in the world today right mm -hmm. And I think that's what you see with American food too, because of our diversity, because of we're such a large country with different types of terroir and history. We're gonna, you know, the the future of food is definitely in in America, and we also gonna make sure that um, the diversity journey on it is not. We're in the beginning of that journey, not in the end. Yeah, it's just something you had said. You know that if you're getting written out of the story, then it affects the motivation, which affects the legacy. And I just feel like we've seen that happen a lot in Atlanta. I mean, there's definitely a group that's coming up and really like changing that narrative and, and seeing black chefs like yourself open here also change that. But Atlanta is, is, is a weird place because it's a really cool restaurant town and it's really like familial, but it's still pretty white. Uh, unless you're talking about the immigrant cuisine, which is honestly what makes Atlanta the strongest, you know, everything in Clarkston and Beaufort Highway and Duluth. Um, yeah. And it is important to talk about it because it's a value proposition, right? And uh, being seen, being heard means that you, f means that you aspire also, right? Mm -hmm. But there are also pockets of great restaurants that functions that, people might not talk about, but are extremely functional. I mean, if you walk into, and there's sort of brilliance happening, right? If you walk into like Toast, right? Yeah, on Lennox at 12 o'clock on a Tuesday, it's packed, <laughs> right? It's packed and right. they don't, they're so busy. So they don't even open for dinner. Now, how brilliant is that? 
that comes out of a diner culture that they now call it brunch, but they created a value proposition that their customers adores and line up for. Great. So everything doesn't have to be written on high and low. There's enough subculture for people to appreciate it, right? And I think Atlanta's always had that, whether that goes back to Goody Mob or Outcast or, you know, it eventually becomes nationwide and eventually becomes worldwide. So I draw a lot of inspiration from uh, something that is happening locally that you can just see is buzzing and might not get statewide recognition yet, might not be end up in the big papers, mm-hmm. but it's happening. And I think that's the beauty of a large city like Atlanta, that you can have several conversations going on at the same time. Mm. I mean, is that why you chose Atlanta? What, how do you choose your restaurants? Because, you know, I've been to your restaurants in New York and the Bahamas and, and hopefully soon in Atlanta like and Miami. How, how do you choose where you go? Well, it's, it's, it's very different. You know, Red Rooster, the brand, I, I want to work and create jobs in predominantly African-American neighborhoods. So Overtown in, in Miami and Harlem are great places to work in to really create, be part of creating change and opportunities and do it through arts, culture, and food, right? And through hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, we get offered to open Red Roosters every week somewhere. But <laughs> we always say no, because it's got to be felt and it's got to be a very specific thing. And to be honest, we started to look for Red Rooster in Atlanta uh, but then COVID happened, and then we stopped. And there's a it's a large footprint. I need ten thousand square feet. I want to have the music venue right. It's a large footprint, mm-hmm. uh, and we didn't find anything that felt right uh, for us. Uh, and that's when I found this place in the fourth ward that uh, uh, I just felt this is smaller. But it can it can do part of what we wanted to do, right? Mm. Create jobs, and highly focus in a historically African American neighborhood. You know, stone thrown away from where Martin Luther King was born. You know, we can still have a meaningful conversation. I just can't do the full food, Red Rooster with the live music and all of that. But we can we can we can do the DNA of it, which is the Marcus Restaurant. And when I saw that open kitchen, that grill, and that bar, I'm like. Let's not complicate this. It should be Marcus Bar and Grill because the bar is to the left and the grill is straight ahead. That simplifies it. And that's what we want to do. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman and Chef Marcus Samuelson. And can you tell people how this restaurant is different than your others? Because it is a standalone concept, right? Like you're mm-hmm. saying, it, mm-hmm. it, you're not just replicating um, no. another. Well, I also think like a city like Atlanta deserves its own. It's big. It's it has beautiful, beautiful pockets of food, and and it, it deserves its own. And um, you know, I just looked at really some food that I love that is around comfort food, but also where can I bring in an Ethiopian narrative? Where can I bring in my Scandinavian narrative? Because uh, you know, when we in Harlem, we're in the north cooking Southern-inspired food. Um, when we're in Atlanta, we're in Georgia, we like, we're in the South. So right. I'm learning. I'm taking, you got to, you know, play in 
soccer in Brazil is much harder than playing soccer <laughs> in the United States. You know what I mean? Right. So for me, it's important to find this showing the amount of respect that the South uh, from what I have for it and then the traditions, but then adding my character, Hannah's character, Hannah's personality to it, right? So when we do like a smoked brisket on on fries, that's all Hannah Young. Like she grew up cooking briskets with her dad, slow cooking, barbecuing. And, and got she's your chef de cuisine? Yeah. Uh, but when we do our, you know, our Jubilee rice, you know, thinking then we think about the tradition of what broken rice have been to mm-hmm. West Africans and African-American culture. We, anything from, um, you know, coming in from Gullah from South Carolina and so on. So for me, that's a celebration dish, right? But that's, we are the only restaurant that has a dish like that, you know? So for me, it's about respecting where we are, but still adding a unique flavor to it. It has to be delicious. Of course, we have a, you know, wonderful fried chicken and waffle. Uh, we have our shrimp and grits. But we also have our number one seller is our piccadilly pasta. Our number okay. uh, second seller is our, our bass, right? So it's not just about uh, doing riffs on Southern traditions. It's also finding a nuanced menu where we're inspired by the South, but we, it's our own take. And we also adding on some dishes that could be anywhere, but it's just the way we see food and where we want to serve to our guests. One of the thing I think is really interesting about you and many chefs is that, you know, how food is really your medium um, in so many ways. You know, not only have you been on TV, you have your own podcast on Audible, um, you know, but also you use food as a way to help um, through your work with Jose Andres um, and and just in general during COVID, everything that you did um, just, you know, community outreach. Can you talk about that, how food can be a tool for good or how you use it as a tool for good? I just think that on two levels, right? I, A, being an immigrant to this country, uh, it's about showing gratitude and love for my community. Secondly, coming from a very poor place, starting point, coming from Ethiopia, from not just from Ethiopia, but coming from... A, a, a hut in Ethiopia. So there's a couple of levels where, you know, people took a chance on me and helped my family out. Mm-hmm. But then also, the journey of food is about breaking bread. The journey of hospitality is about working with your neighbor, right? And it shows, I remember the very first time I really saw it was, we did a Patrick Clark when he passed away. We did a Patrick Clark benefit and so many chefs were just there helping out. Then two years later, after 9-11, say, all of New York City chefs were down there, either handing out food or chopping or just supporting you know, the horrific needs that were after 9-11 in New York. And I was just a young buck then, but I was, I will always remember it. So when when the pandemic happened, being in a different position, we have each other as communities, right? As chefs. You know, I was talking to Jose and he said, you know, we have masks, we have gloves, we can if you shut rooster and convert it to a community kitchen, 
we can start serving right away. And you got to put yourself back into that time of like early March, 2020. It was just devastating news. People were dying left and right. We had no idea how to handle this, right? On a local level or on a nationwide level or on a global mm -hmm. level. And then to be able to actually put on gloves, put on masks, go to work for a couple of hours, handing out 300 dishes a day, 500 dishes a day, 800 dishes a day, 1,500 foods a day, right? And having that dialogue with our new guests, which wasn't the downtown lawyers or something like that. It was a new <laughs> guest, right? Right. But having a meaningful conversation, it mm -hmm. really transformed me. It really saved me in many ways as much as it helped the community. And guests are just guests. They're gonna, they were like, hey, we like the chicken better than yesterday. How come we're getting apples? How come we're getting apples today? We we like oranges on Friday. It was like this banter and these small moments of joy in a, in a true devastating time. That's kind of was like, I got my groove back. I was like, whoa, if I ever get a chance to open a restaurant again, and who cares about fancy restaurants at that time, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I started to spend more and more time at home. I started to cook more home cooking. And it was out of that time, I started to create Hof Mar, which is a restaurant in Chelsea. And Hof Mar would never happen if we wouldn't have gone through that, that journey. What is your relationship like with hospitality today, after COVID, after 9-11, after seeing all of these things? Do you still love it as much as you always have? More. More. I've seen us as a community come together even more. I've seen our guests sit outside in freezing January in New York City to support restaurants. I've seen uh, uh, communities buying swag from restaurants, buying takeout, stepping up, going to the local pub, uh, buying extra coffees, tipping. I've seen us come together even more because people realized without hospitality in their neighborhoods, they really don't have a neighborhood. You know, things that we took for granted pre-pandemic are not taken for granted anymore. And when yeah. you do that drive-by, you see, oh, there's a Haitian restaurant next to a Jamaican restaurant next to a Chinese restaurant. Stop. Wait a minute. They're actually holding up this neighborhood. They're creating mm -hmm. 15 jobs each. I should actually go in and support them. Because without them, this neighborhood is not the same. And what is your relationship like with food today? After all these years of it being your medium and it being your bread and butter, literally, you know, I mean, what, how, how do you feel about just food and cooking? Well, I mean, I, I work, I work on it. I mean, I can't say I have a healthy relationship to food. You know, it's, it's in my head constantly. It's my other family. Sometimes my wife would say my first family, <laughs> depending on what day you ask. Um, it's, I don't know if it ever will be a healthy one. It's like something that I feel it's been my, it is my, uh, it's something that I work with every day, every single day. And I love the grind. I love the people that it shapes and the people that we feed, but also the people that, you know, like, you know, I enjoy working with young line cooks, becoming sous chefs, becoming chefs, people who have the patience and they believe in themselves and all we have to do to guide them to become great professionals. 
I enjoy the middle, the chaos of the middle of service that could be like a beautiful orchestra. I enjoy all the back and forth between the service, servers, all the multiple steps that needs to happen to have a perfect service. I enjoy all that. It's like a ballet. It's like going to Carnegie Hall or Lincoln Center, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's exhausting. I mean, I'm a trained chef. I worked in restaurants. You know, I've been, I'm a food writer 100% of the time. You know, it's like, it is it is a lot to be in food all the time. But but one of the things I, that... I, I didn't say, I didn't say it wasn't, I think anything you love and you're passionate about will be exhausting. I would tell you, we had a clear choice during the pandemic. It was taken away from us. And that is even more exhausting. Not being able to do what you love is even more exhausting. But there's something different about food. Food is so, it, it, it just like hit, like when people learn that you do something in food, it's just, it's such a touch point in so many ways, which is why it's so beautiful. And there is no end to the knowledge, right? But that can also be overwhelming, at least to me. <laughs> but um, but one thing I have heard you talk about is just you know your son and being a father, um, teaching him about all of these parts of himself. You know the Swedish part, the American part, the Ethiopian part. What what role does food play in in the way you parent? Uh, it's a huge part of it. You know, we go to the farmers market every Saturday. Um... We talk about the seasonalities, the changes, and then we, you know, have an open bag and we fill the bag and then we go home and cook it, right? And then when we take the train to school on Monday, he can still talk about how we did this and how we did that. He actually thinks the cooking part is more fun than the eating part, right? He's just <laughs> a, you know, it's a normal six-year-old where he likes his stuff. But uh, the enjoyment we have about cooking it and the different things that he tells me about uh, animal parts and stuff like that that he discovered. I just, I just enjoy us talking about food, you know, being, you know, eating from each other's plates and trying different things. And another part that I find interesting about you is how I feel like you're really becoming, you know, you already are a storyteller, but I feel like that's really become one of your big roles. Um, why do you like to tell people stories? What made you start the podcast with Jonathan Waxman on Audible? You know, Jonathan, oral history of American restaurants is incredible. And I've always been a fan of restaurants as much as I'm in restaurants, right? So mm -hmm. when I was like, how did, speaking to Nancy, how she and Mark started, right? or listening to Wolfgang and his stories, or hearing, and some of them are known, very, very known, right? But some of them are not. How did Alberta Wright start a restaurant in the theater district in New York? What was her, how did she find the money? How did she put it together? What was her vision? Especially when you talk about women of color, stories that are undertold. Here's an opportunity to, polish them and, and share them in a new medium like Jezebel's or like the incredible Leah Chase or you know it could be a hot dog stand that is a family business for 60 years in Washington DC right it doesn't always have to be fancy restaurants so for me the story behind 
the restaurant for me has always been fascinating and uh because it's the why people do things are very often different and mm-hmm. how they did it and what rules did they have to break because they all broke broke rules that's something that we can learn from yeah i find it really interesting the way you guys tell the story like you're saying with jezebel's when you're talking about like so many different people come in to give their point of view as well and you really get a sense of place um, they were talking about Magic Johnson looking for <laughs> something. It was just really funny. They kept going mm-hmm. back to it during the whole episode. Um, yeah. Well, I know you're busy, so I can wrap it up. But one of the questions I always ask my guests that I that I always find very curious is, is what do you cook yourself when you need comfort or you need to comfort someone else? Um, I love to cook this Ethiopian stew called Dorawat, which is a chicken stew that's like beautiful red onion and ginger and berbera, which is a spice blend. The other day I cooked uh, Swedish meatballs for my son, and we rolled them together, and we had a lot of fun making them. Um, And, uh, yeah, so I go back to things like, uh, you know, it's the summertime and we're in Sweden, you know, a simple mackerel toast, but we catch the mackerel ourselves, and then we, you know, sear it off and all, you know, so he's part of the process. I go back to that that food that I grew up with. Those first impressions, those first meals that you fell in love with. And is there anything that you want to promote, anything that you have coming up that you want to let listeners know about? No, I'm just enjoying being a chef and being able to, you know, work in Atlanta. It's been so far an incredible journey to from finding the place, the ideation, to putting it together. It's just, and also gratitude. Uh, people have been coming out and being super supportive. Even if, as you know, opening a restaurant is hard. There's a lot of small things that can go wrong. But people have been able to see us and oversee the mistakes and watching us becoming um, a better restaurant because that's our ambition to serve. Well, we're definitely happy to have you here and welcome to Atlanta. Thank you again for being here and for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, that's this week's episode. Thank you to Marcus for joining us and thank you for listening. If you want to keep up with me, you can follow me on social as Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds, or you can subscribe and keep up with the podcast that way. Next week, we'll be joined by Chef J. Trent Harris of Mujo Sushi in Atlanta, Georgia, which is one of my favorite restaurants to open in the past couple of years. Again, we'll be back next Sunday with Chef J. Trent Harris of Mujo Sushi in Atlanta, Georgia. This has been The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman. Thanks for listening. Thank you.